on Textbooked. The reason for mass incarceration is racialized control, surveillance. You know, when slavery was abolished, all of a sudden, all of these freed Black people that you could no longer exploit for free labor became surplus. So what did the state do with them? They devised ways in which to corral them back into unpaid, exploitative, dehumanizing labor. And in this way, mass incarceration has that same function. listening to Untextbooked. This is a podcast that gives students and young people the power to follow our curiosity. There's so many stories throughout the world. Reading even one topic or one story can provide me a deeper dive into who I truly am and where I come from. We can better understand the trajectory we're moving on as both a nation and a society. We talk to leading journalists, historians, writers, changemakers, you name it. It's pressing, it's concerning, it was shocking. And through that, we take the history out of the textbook. I'm Gabe Hostin. And I'm Sydney Clark. And you're listening to Untextbooked. So here's a fact that continues to blow my mind. Although the United States has only 5% of the world's population, it holds the world record for the most residents behind bars. This is 25% of the world's prisoners. You can't be serious. You heard me correctly. Of all the prisoners in the world, 25% of them live right here in America. And that number is growing. Wow. So much for being the land of the free. Tell me about it. As a person who is constantly seeking ways to stay informed, I've always been intrigued by the topic of mass incarceration. After watching informative documentaries like 13th by Ava DuVernay, I became even more immersed in this convoluted phenomenon. There is a huge consensus that prisons are beneficial, as in they keep our nation safe from danger and crime. But if that's the case, wouldn't the number of prisoners have gone down by now? Great point. On this episode of Untextbooked, Sydney interviews Victoria Law, author of Prisons Make Us Safer and 20 Other Myths About Mass Incarceration. This groundbreaking book investigates the brutal history of mass incarceration in the United States, showing how dismantling it starts with unpacking the myths surrounding it. Hello, Victoria. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sydney. Your book not only broadened my perspective on the fallacies that lie within the discussion of mass incarceration, it sparked my drive to advocate and further inform myself on the history of this country's prison system. And for that, I am so grateful to have you on this episode. I really want to get into the foundational history of the era of mass incarceration. What elements of slavery and the Jim Crow era are tied into this era that we see today? Well, what we see is slavery and mass incarceration are tied through systems of control and surveillance, particularly of racialized bodies and racialized Black bodies. If we draw that line from chattel slavery to Jim Crow to policies that begin locking, uh, surveilling, controlling, criminalizing, and locking up more and more Black people, especially at a time in which they are organizing to demand their rights 
their civil rights and their human rights and challenging what has always been the status quo in the United States towards black and brown people. When slavery was technically abolished, Southern states immediately started instituting what they called black codes, which were laws that targeted black people only, such as being out past curfew, not having a job, standing around on the sidewalk. And these were actions that white people or states of being that white people could be doing all the time, but black people would be criminalized and then arrested and incarcerated. And in the South, in many cases, would then be leased out as part of convict leasing and returned either to plantations or to coal mines or other exploitative labor conditions that people did not want to do. And they were not paid, but their jailers were paid for leasing them out. Oof, you hear that? Slavery didn't exactly end, it just changed shape. So we can see that lineage continuing, and it gets a little bit less clear when we go into Jim Crow. And then when we go into incarceration, we see many of these same aspects resurfacing. So, and people today have been drawing these lines and pointing out these similarities. We see people talking about the ways in which corporations are benefiting from incarceration, even though I want to be clear that private corporations employing prison labor are not the reason for mass incarceration, but they are a giant parasite. If you have a captive group of people and you can offer them much, much less than you would have to offer a person outside in the free world, like you can pay them like a dollar a day or $2 a day, and they will work for that because the other option is to work for six cents, 10 cents, 20 cents an hour doing work that keeps the prison afloat. Could you imagine working for as low as six cents a day? Absolutely not. But like Victoria says, it's part of the legacy of slavery. So we can see all of these lineages, and then we also see particularly in the summer of 2020, this coming to a head when police murder George Floyd. And people see this. And this also resulted not only in protests across the nation, but teach-ins, people going and reading more about these histories and these linkages and not seeing them as two separate entities. Thank you for that thorough explanation. You mentioned in your response that private corporations are not the reason for mass incarceration. Could you please explain what is the reason for mass incarceration? The reason for mass incarceration is racialized control, surveillance, you know, and removing people who are marginalized and whom the state would consider surplus, to borrow the phrase from carceral geographer Ruth Wilson Gilmore, meaning that they are seen as somehow extra. When slavery was abolished, all of a sudden, all of these freed Black people that you could no longer exploit for free labor became surplus. So what did the state do with them? They devised ways in which to corral them back into unpaid, exploitative dehumanizing labor. And in this way, mass incarceration has that same function. We see this not only with black and brown people, we also see this with other marginalized people, such as queer people, trans people, again, looking at the ways in which laws are devised. So we can see the ways in which this apparatus that was built around controlling black and brown bodies keeps expanding to control and surveil 
and remove other populations that the state considers surplus or undesirable. Yes, thank you for mentioning that. I wanted to move on to the actual factors that contribute to the establishment of mass incarceration, which I believe to be the war on drugs, Mm -hmm. which also turned to the criminalization of just drugs as a whole. Now, in your book, you mentioned that a widely believed myth is the notion that most people in prisons have been convicted of nonviolent drug crimes. Where do you believe the root of that myth stems from? In the 1980s and the 1990s, the United States was sending a terrible, dramatically high number of people to prison for nonviolent drug offenses. This could be things like possession of, you know, a narcotic or possession of marijuana. It could be heightened charges, such as having a certain amount of marijuana or cocaine or heroin or whatever, and having it be trumped up to trafficking or conspiracy to traffic. So what we see is a huge number of people getting swept into this net. You also see the rise of conspiracy charges where prosecutors could charge family members and friends and loved ones with conspiracy, even if they had never, ever touched the narcotics or the proceeds from the narcotics or not been involved at all. So I want to be clear that in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s, we saw this dramatic increase. And then what we saw starting in the late 1990s until today is a decrease in this use of nonviolent drug charges. That doesn't mean they're not still happening, but they do not make up the majority of people in prison. These days, over 50% of people in prisons are convicted of what we would call violent crimes. And I want to break down what I mean by violent crimes, because when you classify a crime or a charge, prosecutors get to decide what charge they are going to level against a person. If I break into your house I can be charged with burglary. But if you are home, I can be charged with aggravated burglary. In Oregon in 1996, Oregon voters passed something called Measure 11, which stated that if anybody was convicted of a crime involving another person, you and I get into a fight, you know, because you come home and you see me trying to run off with your television set. My charge is now heightened and my prison sentence increases because it involved a person. And this skyrocketed the number of people who were inside. But now we're seeing in the 1990s and early 2000s, and even till today, like fewer of those charges are being leveled because states are changing their laws around possession. In the 1990s, New York State repealed its Rockefeller drug laws, which were passed in 1973, where If you had two ounces of a narcotic that a prosecutor and police said you were going to sell or four ounces of a narcotic for personal use and you went to trial, you could get 15 to life or 25 to life. And it didn't matter if it was your first offense. It didn't matter if you were simply in the car in which the narcotic was found. Like none of those factors mattered. The judge's hands were tied. If you were found guilty, off to prison you would go for multiple decades. Remember how the United States has 25% of the world's prison population? Yeah, I can see why. And we don't have that kind of a law anymore, which means that fewer people are being sent to prison on these nonviolent drug crimes. But at the same time, we're seeing people being sent to prison on a host of other crimes, some of which may not actually be violent or as violent as people imagine, 
but it's also easier to convince people to decarcerate when you focus on what they call the low-hanging fruit or the nonviolent people incarcerated for drug offenses, because those are people that are not seen as scary. And you can also paint them any which way you want to decrease people's fear of letting them out and letting them back into the community. Thank you for that explanation. Knowing what we know about the devastating effects Nixon's war on drugs campaign had on impoverished communities of color, do you think the era of mass incarceration would have prevailed in the way it did without the establishment of Nixon's campaign? That is a very interesting question, because at the same time that Nixon was instituting his war on drugs, what we also see on the federal level is the FBI launching its COINTEL program, counterintelligence program, which targeted radical liberation groups such as the Black Panther Party, such as the American Indian Movement. So I wonder if the war on drugs had not ramped up, if there would have been another way in which the government used to corral, control, and subdue Black and brown communities either as they were organizing or before they could organize. Because again, what we're seeing oftentimes is even though there are fewer arrests being made under the war on drugs, we still see that a disproportionate number of black, brown, and other marginalized people are in prisons. So we can see the ways in which sometimes the state will let some people go and will redo its laws to bring other people into its clutches at the same time. So what we see, you know, we don't see the war on drugs going on the way that it had in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. But what we see, particularly for pregnant people, is the criminalization of drug use during pregnancy, and which, again, targets Black, Brown, and poor people. Because if you are a rich person and you go to your private doctor and your doctor is saying like, hey, you should not be taking fill-in-the-blank with the substance because this is harmful to your fetus, they are not going to pick up the phone and call the police and say, you know, like, we need to arrest Betty White for endangering her fetus. But what we will see is if somebody goes to their local clinic that is underfunded and already has ties with the police department or has been approached by the police department about turning in people who use drugs while pregnant, you will see that people are getting arrested more often on these charges of endangering their fetus. And then they are being put in jails, which have conditions which actually endanger the pregnancy even more with its terrible medical care, bad food, threat of violence, constant stress, dirt, lack of nutrition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what we see is the state kind of revamps its way of dealing with drug use. And instead of saying like, okay, We're not criminalizing any drug use. They zero in on a particular population and say, yes, but you will still be criminalized if you use drugs while you are pregnant, or you will be criminalized if we drug test your baby after birth and the baby has traces of some narcotic in that. And then we will send you far away to prison on these charges, not we will offer you help and we will try to see what we can do to make sure that you and your baby have a healthy, happy rest of your life. Yes. Oh, wow. That's a very interesting perspective. To follow up on your response, this may be a very obvious question, but do you think that Black communities specifically, especially communities in more urban areas, do you think they were 
the sole targets of this drug criminalization era, specifically because they were seen as the most vulnerable at the time by the government? I think that they were targeted, not necessarily because they were seen as the most vulnerable, but they were seen by police prosecutors and system actors as the most undesirable. Because you have to remember, drug use happens in rural white communities and poor white communities and middle-class white communities and college campuses. And you don't see that same level of policing. You don't see that same level of surveillance. You don't see that same level of criminalization in these communities as you do in low-income communities of color. So they are more vulnerable because there are fewer resources to be able to fight back and there's less repercussion for state actors such as police, prosecutors, judges, etc., if they target these communities. But I think also this, again, is the way in which the state reshapes itself to say, how do we get rid of these surplus people? How do we pull them out of society? Because we don't have jobs to give them. We don't have other opportunities to give them. As we've seen from the organizing in the 1960s and 1970s, people will organize and start to demand these things, which should be granted to everybody, but they will organize and demand this. And they will also begin creating their own programs, a lot of the Black Panther Party's survival pending revolution programs, if we are not providing them. And they will begin to show a model of community autonomy that threatens the state. I mean, you would think, why on earth would the FBI target a group that's giving free breakfast to school children? Because on the face of it, Free food for children is something that should be happening nationwide, not something that should be targeted. So I think they were seen both as more vulnerable in terms of not able to have that political clout to fight back, but also as undesirable in the fact that the government did not want communities coming together, organizing, demanding their rights, demanding their freedom. Right. I wholeheartedly agree with that perspective. I think it's important to note that the war on drugs is not a partisan issue. Throughout history, Republicans and Democrats backed laws and legislation that supported war on drugs. In the 1990s, Joe Biden and Bill Clinton authorized pro-incarceration legislation such as, which you know in your book, the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act and the Three Strikes You're Out provision. Now that mass incarceration has become more of a hot button issue, today we see the same politicians who are fighting back on the legislation that they helped pass. Now, my question to you is, do you think this political backtracking will essentially be beneficial to the fight against mass incarceration in the long run? Or will it do more damage? I think the backtracking is better than the rah, rah, let's lock everybody up and throw away the key. But I think it is up to people who care about racial justice, hold their feet to the fire and say, this is not enough. It is not enough to simply pass legislation that says we will no longer lock people up for marijuana, but then still leave how many dozens, hundreds, thousands of people locked up for on charges of conspiracy to traffic marijuana or selling marijuana or trafficking marijuana. If we are moving towards this idea that we don't want to lock people up for these actions. And it is not enough to say, okay, we're going to have legislation that only affects 
the people that we consider to be good people or model people or not as scary people and leave other people behind. And it's not enough to just pass legislation and not give it any enforcement. I mean, as you pointed out, mass incarceration was built by both Republicans and Democrats. We see Joe Biden, you know, like being very, very tough on crime. You know, during the 1980s and 1990s, he was the architect of the 1994 crime bill. We see Bill Clinton, you know, stopping his cam- his presidential campaign tour to oversee the execution of a man who was so developmentally delayed that he saved his last meal's dessert for later. So, I mean, this tells you volumes about this race to be toughest on crime. And now what we're seeing is some of them backtracking. And at the same time, we see other politicians continuing this rah-rah, cheerlead us even further into a prison nation. So the backtracking is better than the like full-throttled push ahead towards locking more people up, but it is not enough. It is not going to be the solution. And it is also something that if you flip once you can flip again as the political winds blow. Biden, you know, has flipped numerous times on things that he has said. And I think it is up to people to realize that politicians are not going to be the answer. And while federal politicians can set the tone for other states, the majority of incarceration also happens at the state and local level. So people need to pay attention to what is happening in their city or in their town or in their jurisdiction, and then what is happening in their state. You know, here in New York, we had bail reform that was passed and was enacted in 2020, and almost immediately it was attacked. There was not even a chance to see whether or not it was working or whether it was not working according to anyone's metrics, because more conservative pro-prison politicians mostly those who are white and representing majority white constituencies, immediately attacked it as fostering more crime, fostering more violence without any data. And people jumped on this and used individual anecdotes and examples of like, see, this person went and punched a lady who was walking down the street and she had been let out three times earlier. You know, So this proves that bail reform isn't working. And it was like hand cherry-picked examples to prove a point without actually giving it enough time to see if it had worked. So I think, again, like looking at what's happening on the state and local level is hugely important. I mean, go vote for the people in the federal office, because as we've seen with the Dobbs decision, you know, this is going to also make a huge difference in the longer term. But also, if you're thinking about incarceration and criminalization, what happens on your local level is extremely important. Yes. Thank you so much for noting how important local politics are. Now I want to transition to a very important part, I believe, to be in your book, which talks about the invisible people behind the walls, Uh, one community being um, the Muslim community um, in regards to 9-11. Now, my question to you is, 21 years later, Mm -hmm. what effect does 9-11 have on the imprisonment of Muslim communities? It still has a tremendous effect on Muslim communities. We see earlier, we talked about the ways in which the state shifts itself. And yes, 9-11 was terrible. It was a tragedy. So many people lost their lives. But the government took hold of it to say, how can we then go and surveil, criminalize, and entrap 
people in the Muslim community. So for people who believe that like we need to have better security so people don't hijack planes and commit these terrorist actions, entrapping people, which means that basically an informant, whether it's a police informant or a paid informant, goes into a community, becomes part of the community, and then tries to get people in that community to agree to do things that are highly illegal. Not we're going to go swipe candy bars from the corner store, but you know, like, oh yeah, that sounds great. We'll go blow up a fill in the blank. You know, we'll go blow up that train station. And no crime has actually been committed. Nobody The informant is typically the person who suggests this action and pushes it. And we've seen this again and again and again in these post 9-11 terror prosecutions of people is that oftentimes they are entrapped, not all the time, but oftentimes we see that these are the high profile cases and they get decades long sentences because they were entrapped. So what we see is the state, again, figuring out ways in which to surveil, control and remove people that it deems surplus. And then it also makes it seem like they are waging and winning a war on terror, when in reality, what they're doing is entrapping people who maybe, you know, like in some cases, there was one person who did not have a very high IQ. He was in his 20s. He lived with his mother. When the informant attempted to get him to agree to commit jihad, he continually said, I have to go ask my mother first. So this was not a man who was going to say like, yes, I, of my own volition, are going to blow up this train station or whatever it was. And he was convicted. He was sentenced to prison. He got to prison and asked if he could play Pokemon in prison. So, I mean, this is the kind of person that the U.S. government and we as taxpayers should say, we don't want our money to be spent locking people up on these trumped up charges. We want people... If you were going to say, we need a security apparatus, do things that would actually make the nation secure, which they have not proven to be able to do again and again and again. Right. Thank you so much for that insight, because I think that people don't often talk about the horrific effects that 9-11 had, not only on the victims themselves, but other communities that followed, the Muslim community being one. So thank you for that. Now, I wanted to ask you, how do we amplify social awarenesses surrounding trans men and women, Hispanic women, and immigrants who are also widely affected by mass incarceration? I think part of it is finding out more about them. There are books and articles that are written about trans people, immigrant people, other people of color who are in the prison systems or in ICE detention centers, which I want to say, even though they're called detention centers, they function as prisons. They are immigrant prisons. You are not allowed to leave. You know, it's not like a 45-minute detention in high school where you like sit there and then you get to leave when the bell rings. You are imprisoned. You are locked away from your loved ones. You are told when you can get up, when you can go to sleep, where you can go, whether you can eat, what you can eat, et cetera, et cetera. But I think learning more and is the first step towards being able to amplify this. And then making those connections to say like, hey, some of these structures and the architecture is remarkably similar between our system of state and federal prisons and immigrant detention centers and not allowing groups to be pitted against each other. I mean, when Obama was talking about immigration reform, he used the term families, not felons, which immediately pitted 
two groups of marginalized peoples who have been historically marginalized by the U.S. government and the larger U.S. society. And it pitted them against each other for like a race for, you know, like scraps of approval or scraps of belonging, as opposed to saying like, hey, people who have felonies are also family members and community members. And people who have families may also have people with felonies in them. And some of these people may also have immigrants documented, undocumented, overstayed their visa, et cetera, et cetera, in their families, whether it's biological family or chosen family as well. So instead of pitting groups against each other, saying like, hey, you know, this is something that that can be that people should come together on and say like, hey, here are the similarities. Like, why are we saying like, wait, why should I, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, when, you know, like these people, this, or I'm only going to work around this issue because I don't like the fact that people come here, quote unquote, illegally, you know, like where people are coming from across the border. So I think understanding the issue is the first step and then being able to talk about them and share this with others and make those connections. So the conversation about prisons isn't always about Black cisgender men and men of color who are presumed to be heterosexual. And conversations about immigrants aren't always about dreamers and other people that we consider quote unquote good immigrants, but also like looking at all the nuances because humans are complicated people. And the United States tends to try to stifle and squelch any sort of nuance so that we are all one-dimensional characters. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think my mantra overall is you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. That is the only way you will be able to affect change. Now, lastly, I consider you to be an expert in this topic. So I am just curious to know, in your opinion, what would be the most effective way to dismantle mass incarceration? I know it's a heavy loaded question, but (laughs) in your best way, what do you think would be? I mean, there are so many different ways. I think one of the ways in which people can do it in their everyday lives is to say like, how do we handle conflict? You know, and how do we handle conflict without bringing in the state and bringing in more harm? And I'm not saying like we we start huge and be like, what do we do when somebody is murdered? But, you know, like thinking about ways in which we deal with conflict in our daily lives, you know, like if you are having a conflict with a roommate, you know, because they're always like turning their music up when you're trying to study, or if you're having conflict with somebody in your house and you're like, hey, you said you would do these dishes and they've been piled up for three days and I really need to use that, you know? Yeah. You know, like that particular pot to like make something that I said I would make, you know, can you please do the dishes? Mm -hmm. So figuring out like how to deal with conflict and getting to know community, which is I imagine easier on a college campus than like, say like on the streets, but bringing that sense when you leave to say like, do I know my neighbors? Do I know who's on my block? And can I go to them if I need help? And do they feel comfortable going to me if they need help? Things like how can we start to build a society in which people are not feeling like they need to call in outside authorities for every little thing, you know, like, so in that way, we cut down the number of police interactions with people in the community whether the police be like campus police or regular police. And then at the same time, as I said earlier, a lot of criminalization and incarceration takes place on the local level. So finding out what is happening and being part of pushing back on that. Like if the college says, hey, you know, like now we're going to hand over complaints about X, Y, or Z 
from campus police to, you know, to the local police station and they will be dealing with it saying, hey, you know, like, what does that mean? Does that mean they're going to be coming in and taking, you know, how does this further criminalize people, you know, and particularly on a campus of black and brown students? What does this mean for us? We're saying like, hey, we want to organize something in which we're handling safety in a different way rather than doing this. So there's modeling and building. And then there's also saying like, how do we push back against these policies that have for too long devastated so many lives and communities? Wow. That is a really good way and method. And I, once again, wholeheartedly agree with everything that you're saying. Is there anything else you would like to add as we are at the end of our episode? I think that We've talked a lot about so many different things about incarceration, and it might seem really, it might seem a lot to listeners to be like, where do I even start? This just seems to be too much. So start small. I mean, start in your personal life. How do you deal with conflict? You know, like how can you push this idea that we always need to rely on policing and punishment to deal with each other, you know, further and further out of your life? And that takes practice and that takes time. And then also figure out what is going on locally that you can get involved in, whether it's just, you know, hey, I'm going to show up for this rally or, oh, you know, I can help out with this thing to, oh, I'm going to pay attention more to what these local politicians are saying about what they want to do in terms of policing, jailing and imprisonment of people. And I'm going to start on that level. Yes. I couldn't agree more. Victoria, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. After that conversation, what was your takeaway? Yeah, my takeaway was that mass incarceration is a destructive plague that has been infiltrating our society for centuries. We will only begin to affect change the moment we, as a nation, allow ourselves to confront the horrid realities that lie within our justice system. Thanks for sharing, Sydney. Our producer, Sydney Clark, is a freshman at Howard University. Victoria Law is a freelance journalist and author who frequently writes about the intersections between mass incarceration, gender, and resistance. You can follow Victoria Law on Twitter at LVickiML. That's L-V-I-K-K-I-M-L. We've included a link to her work in our show notes. Be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you decide to listen. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Next week, we're looking at how the gay bar shapes gay identity. We've all kind of heard about the bar raids. Certainly Stonewall is the kind of world famous one. And then as well, the ones that came before it, like the Black Cat in Los Angeles, ones that came after, unfortunately, as well. The thing that's interesting about it to me is that place is such a reflection of what identity is. And so if people are congregating, then they're considered targetable. If you like the show, tell your friends, students, professors, and maybe even drop a review or rate the show. We'd love to hear what you think. Our website is untextbook.org and we're on social media at Untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is produced in partnership with Pod People, Ann Foos, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Shirley Wong, Hannah Pedersen, Danielle Roth, Shanice Tyndall, and Michael Aquino. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer and Cece Payne is our youth program coordinator and producer. Untextbook is a project of the History Collab, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves 
society, and the planet. Thanks for listening.